2013, lecture discussion number 110 on the book of Romans. And this is, uh, this is where I say, uh, welcome to our special Mother's Day lecture, um, which you know isn't the case, uh, but that's okay. I, I, I feel an obligation to do it. Before we advance along, uh, just a few uh, more closing thoughts, if you will, on last week's incursion into Jeremiah 19.5. Um, that seems to have gotten the response that I actually thought it might, and that's uh, been really good. Jeremiah 19.5 is a passage that's very often misunderstood. It's certainly mischaracterized, and it is done so by agenda-driven entities. By agenda-driven entities, I mean uh, churches who have a plan to utilize it to their advantage to promote whatever control-slash-economic plot that they wish to impose on their gullible congregants. You see, by the way, if I can reduce the ability of God to save you, then where does the salvation rest now? Not just on yourself, but you, of course, we would all fail. I use the analogy that if uh, our salvation was a basketball uh, and it was passed to us, uh, Satan would strip it out of our hands before we even noticed we had it. Uh, and so, uh, if you're using that further, uh, God has to super glue it to us. If for lack of a better phrase, but to make it impossible to lose it. But those who want God to be um, diminished in any way, to be uh, feebled or enfeebled, sorry, to be uh, um, anything but all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present, uh, then they uh, put that salvation issue upon yourselves or upon themselves, ultimately. Because if you can't be trusted with your salvation, then how about paying me? And that ultimately is where it goes. And that's the economic uh, control plot that I uh, am referring to. And the congregants line up for it. I don't know why uh, Lori was asking me today as we were driving here. It's not understandable why someone would want this kind of system. But it is by far the predominant one. Okay, so these uh, these entities uh, do this kind of stuff to great effect, I might add. And if you were not here for the lecture on uh, Cinco de Stevo, or now is it uh, also is acceptable Stevo de Mayo, then let me catch you up somewhat. Jeremiah 19.5 concerns the origin of child sacrifice. That's what it's about. God declares without equivocation that he did not command child sacrifice, and he did not speak of it. And so he is saying, this event or this practice is not from me. In fact, he goes on in 19.5 to say, there is nothing, no sin in me at all. And Jeremiah 19.5 is a definitive verse on the origin of sin. It says it's from God's own voice. God is not ever the source of sin, much to the dismay of those who have an agenda otherwise. And as I said, that agenda always leads to the same place. Your salvation is somehow dependent on somebody else. You have to have some kind of uh, ceremony, certainly right upon the time of your death. You don't get that ceremony, wow, too bad. Got to have it. Or you've got to tithe, or you've got to be a church member, you sing in the choir, whatever it is that you have to go through, that ensures your salvation. 19.5 is used often by these, these guys to, uh, to say the exact opposite of what it says. It says that God has no sin inside him. He is not the source of sin. So now, if it cannot come from him, if God is not the origin of child sacrifice, then the obvious question emerges immediately, right? If it's not God, did man think of this child sacrifice, or did Satan think of this? Dims your choices. That's all there is there. And and if once you come to this point, you have to ask why. What is the purpose slash motive of brutally killing infant children? Why would I do it? Today we do it because of the money. But that's not the context of Jeremiah 19.5. It's an industry today. By the way, do you think God sees it any differently? I doubt. 
We start to answer that last question. What is the motive of this? Uh, by adding in Leviticus 18, 21 through 24 and Leviticus 24 through 5, where God makes very, very strong statements against child sacrifices, child sacrificing. He calls it perversion and an abomination. And it's linked to other acts equally identified. He groups them. And that's uh, very helpful to understanding the motive behind it. It is important to recognize, to understand that God defines abomination as adultery. So if I put it on the board here, adultery isn't adultery. Adultery. Did I get it right? Abomination. Those words are interchangeable. So whenever you read abomination, you have to think adultery. And that's in the sense that mankind or Israel has committed adultery uh, with respect to, to uh, worshiping other things in the place of the true creator, if that makes sense to you. Let me repeat it. It's adultery because ultimately uh, abomination or adultery is substituting something and worshiping something besides God. And that is adultery to him. And in this case, with man, it's always worshiping things. Other things, worshiping things versus the creator of things. That's the, the, the contrast that's developed. And see Daniel 9.27, the abomination that makes desolate. That is the Antichrist being worshipped in the Holy of Holies in place of God. It's, he is a what? What is the Antichrist? He's a thing, a created entity. So worshiping a thing in place of God is adultery to God. Also called an abomination. You, as I said, you can interchange that. And when you add uh, uh, Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, the motive, the purpose becomes apparent. What, what it becomes is this permanent, eternal destruction of those who are doing these killing children ceremonies. And they're killing children as a method of worship. And he says, without stuttering, if you're doing this, you're gone, lost. It isn't because of what you're doing. What you're doing is simply what? It's a manifestation of what you're thinking. It's a physical act revealing a mental property. A while ago, I received a letter uh, where the question concerned prayer and worship. The gist being this. If prayer doesn't get you what you want... Why bother? And the same process uh, does and would apply to worship. Let me phrase it this way. If worshiping God doesn't get you stuff, what's the point? And I want you to notice the focus of that. It's on things and stuff. And, and contrast that immediately with what does God focus on? What does he want us uh, uh, to ask? Um, Bill the Cow said a long, long time ago um, um, that he understood, he read somebody, and I, we both thought it was Ada Ruth Habershon, and I have yet to find it again. Um, but uh, essentially it went like this, I pervert and I profane every single prayer I utter. And that, I thought, was a very profound statement. I wish I could find the person that uh, actually said it. They, that was real recognizing, a real recognition of our inner thought process. We have a tendency to do exactly what those two statements are. Uh, that thought process. If prayer doesn't get me what I want, why should I do it? If worshiping God doesn't get me stuff, what's the point? That is predominant in our culture today, and it has been that way since, uh, since humanity, really, effectively. So that really helps us ask this. What leads the child killers who beat drums. If you were here last week, the uh, purpose, uh, God says he will stop the naming of this place, uh, drumming, because they would beat drums. That's how it got its name, as the children screamed to drown out the screaming of the children. So what are the, beat, the, the guys beating the drums and killing the children? What are they expecting to get for it? They're doing this. What are their expectations? 
And as soon as you ask that question, it becomes obvious who thought of it. Now it is obvious that the origin of child sacrifice is Satan himself. Let me continue and you work it through. Satan thought of it. He's the one that benefits from it. Benefit is an interesting word here. No one else, certainly the guys beating the drums and, and killing the children, there is nothing in it for them. They may not know that. The children have to go through the horrible event. But the drum beaters, uh, they, uh, there's nothing for them. But Satan has this agenda, doesn't he? He wants as many of mankind to perish eternally as he can possibly accomplish. And again, you have to ask, why does he want that? What is he attempting? What is Satan uh, trying to accomplish? How does Satan benefit from the eternal damnation of the murderers of of infants, the slaughterers of the innocent? How does Satan benefit, if you will, using benefit in quotation marks again? Why is he trying to do that? You can see, if I can get somebody to the mental state where they will sacrifice a child in order to get something, I am so destroyed them. Their condition is so dark now. Well, uh, to, to get into this, there are, uh, what I couldn't do last week, there are four charges, if you will, or questions. I'll put them in order. I don't really want to write them on the board because i got a lot to write on the board, so I'll just read them off. That way I won't have to erase them later. Again, what is Satan attempting? These accusations, are, are the, also you'll see these as accusations. What would be the accusations? I can't even say it. I have to have, and I don't have my normal brand here. I have cherry flavored Diet Coke. That is not good. It tastes weird. But I get the aluminum poisoning and I get the aspartame. So I gotta be happy about it. Number one, what would be the accusation against the character of God if no one was saved? If he put a plan of salvation together that resulted in no one being saved, what would be the accusation made against him? Number two, what would be the accusation against God if all were saved? What would be said of his character if he saved everyone, regardless, irrespective of what they may have thought or what they may have done? What would be the accusation or what is the accusation against God if few are saved and most are lost? And the fourth one, what would be the accusation against God if most are saved and few were lost? Now you see, you're in a position where you have to define most and few. Okay? Those four questions, I want you to contemplate because they solve Satan's uh, motive. And and I'm going to go back to the killers of the innocents whilst you're doing that. Again... What is it that the drum beaters, what is it that they think they're going to get out of this? Hey, I've got a great idea. Let's start killing children. What are we going to get? Rain? Crops? What? Wealth? Health? Is it health, wealth, and prosperity? What is it that they think they're going to get? Now, and I wrote, what do they hope to gain? And remove the word hope and ask it again. What is it that they actually do get? As opposed to what do they think they might get? Is it not obvious that someone is deceiving someone? I have a deceiver and I have the deceived. Because the people killing the children, 
They're the deceived, willing to be deceived, eventually. And that takes us back to the two trees of, of Genesis, by the way, the deceiver and the deceived. Understand, uh, understanding that there are two trees in Genesis that result in two decisions is of immeasurable value to you as you read your Bible. Uh, once you get a hold of that, that I have a first decision that now, uh, once Adam made the decision to take the poison, the second tree comes into play. He's got to, got to deal with the decision of the second tree. The second tree decision or the tree of life or the tree of forever decision is not on the table until he takes the poison. Understanding that, very important, okay? And immediately we should now, as soon as we got that, as soon as we understand this is what's going on in Genesis, I need to go all the way through the Bible everywhere I can and try to find other places that are similar to that decision-making process that Adam had. What I mean by that is find the other places in the Bible where a sinful choice is made and then there is another greater sinful choice that compounds upon it, resulting, if you make that decision, that results in utter ruin. So I have a decision and I have a compounding decision that ruins me or someone if that second decision is made. Adam made a sinful choice. But he did not go to that second tree and make that decision as well. And so you see that Satan must have done both decisions. Satan must have made the two choices because he's cursed for all eternity. He has the utter ruin attached to him. And by two choices, uh, think of it, if you will, as a, a different way, a line. If you, you got a line, this is a bad line. You started out, you're in a bad spot. But there's a line. And, you know, if you cross that line, God says, calls it giving you over to your darkened or debased or reprobate minds. I've always wondered, where's the, where's the line? Why? Why do I ask those kind of questions? Because I, is it that I want to go right up to it, you know? I've had many people tell me I want to be as bad as I possibly can be and still be saved. By the way, uh, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer is an interesting case. His interview with Stone Phillips, I've always just been amazed by that. It will astonish you. Jeffrey Dahmer essentially says to Stone Phillips that I can be saved by God. As evil, as monstrous a human being as I am, God can save me. That's good news for the rest of you, is what Dahmer said. Essentially, I'm paraphrasing him. He got to the place where he understood how evil he was. And it's extraordinary. That interview, uh, uh, we have... Uh, uh, I've lost my train of thought. Poof, gone. More aspartame. We have quite a few people in, in this uh, congregation that have watched that, and they all say the same thing. You need to show that to this church. And, and I keep going, wow, I, I want you to do it, but I don't want to do it in front of you. It's, it's that powerful. Okay, where was I? There's a line, is what I'm trying to say, that if it's crossed in some sense, now this is allegorical, it's not specific, but there seems to be a place where there, human beings and angelic beings reject all efforts by God to save them. In other words, the rejection is so powerful, they're so dark, that they reject all efforts by God. And he will do what, by the way? He will make constant efforts all the way to the very end. The killing slash sacrificing of children for some sort of profit, imagined or otherwise, is something that Satan saw as profoundly effective at darkening the hearts of men to the point where almost none would reach out for salvation, math being math. And that's what I've done. I've looked at the people who kill children for money, and I've looked at the statistics on them. How many of them say that they're saved? 
killing of children for money or for some kind of gain, whether it be spiritual or otherwise, is a dark place to be. Now you can see Satan's motive for it, can't you? He puts people in a very, very dark place. And Satan desires that God condemn those he loves. And the free will to doom oneself is not prevented. This truth is a profound mystery for most people, and it should not be be such. Ask again, what would be said of God's character if he did prevent you from dooming yourself or myself? What would we say of him? If he prevented mankind and angels from rejecting him, what would be said about him? Okay. That was the stuff I left out from last week. Now, I want to change direction somewhat. Actually return to the deep sleep of Adam. Um, And I want to read. Oops, I was going to write my list on the board without reading the text. I want to read uh, Genesis uh, 2, 18 through 24 again. And we're going to take another run at this. And reestablish the elements here. So let's go ahead and read uh, Genesis 2, 18 through 24. And we're all familiar with it, but I'm going to take it and put it in a place where you may not have seen it before. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. So start immediately asking questions. Why isn't it good? And what does it mean to be comparable to Adam? At what level is he at, by the way? He's at a very, very high level. He can't be deceived, so... He's going to make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the air, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living soul, your Bible might say creature, but it means soul. Whatever Adam called each living soul, that was its name. He named them all. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found something comparable to him. I changed helper to comparable. What does comparable mean? In God's definition here. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh in its place. And that word, by the way, also means side. He went into his side. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he built into a woman. So obviously a surgical procedure. God needed raw material. And he picked bone primarily, but also uh, flesh. And blood is in the bone, right? He built a woman and he brought her to the man. (coughs) Excuse me. And Adam said, Now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Okay? So for today, I want you to notice these Words in there. It's not good. Now that's extraordinary because the whole book of Genesis is going around. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good, it's good, very good. Now all of a sudden it's not good. What does not good mean in that context? Comparable. What does comparable mean? Have to define it. Out of the ground, out of the ground, God made Every beast. And every bird. So, just to make it more obvious, 
What was every beast and every bird made out of? Out of the ground. Very important. Why is he saying that? But for Adam. EFT. Not found. So he put him in a deep sleep. Because she was taken out of man. Okay, now obviously I skipped around a bit, left some key pieces out, did that on purpose because these are the ones that I'm going to run through the next, or today for sure and probably a little bit next week. And it's not that the others aren't equally important. The naming of everything is very important. For example, the out of the side, you have that typology of Christ there, very important. There's two examples, but for what we're going to do here in the next week or so, um, and because this leads us back to Romans 5, uh, 12 through 14. And there's a need, um, because of all of this, because of taken out of man, I have to develop, I have to begin to discuss a basic uh, chromosome structure. And some DNA, uh, uh, facts and characteristics, okay? Now I want you to notice the word basic. Biological science, not my strength. I barely paid attention. I drugged myself through it. That was a mistake. I wish I had paid more attention. Uh, I am seeking to remedy the fact that I have a, a weakness in the biological sciences. At least I'm trying to catch up in the brain structure and the, and, and the brain's operations. But I've come to uh, this kind of uh, stuff and I realize, wow, this was extremely important because it explains three incredible places in the Bible that I've always dealt with and wanted to know more about. So we're going to take a run at it. I want you to bear with me uh, with respect to my illustrations. Okay. We know and everyone knows. I hope everyone knows. If you don't know, pretend you know. And after today... You will know that normal, and, I, and let me emphasize normal, normal, that's a, that may not be the best word I could have chosen, but that's all I got. The normal human males and females possess 46 chromosomes in their cells, and these 46 chromosomes can be divided and arranged, I'm sorry, 46 chromosomes can be arranged into 23 pairs. So you have 46 chromosomes. And you have 23 pairs. So far, so good. 46 divided by 2, 23. Everybody usually gets this right. And I know you're all on the edge of your seat. Uh, some people have said uh, glued. I've always wondered about glued to your seat. Never really made any sense to me. Why would you want that? Maybe you're stealing the seat. Anyway, I, I I recognize this is not going to be fun. It is the special Mother's Day sermon. It's all I got. Cell division, chromosome structures, and genetics. Uh, but this is where we... Of the 23 pairs, I have a 23rd pair. So, I have 22 that I have set aside, and I'm going to focus on the 23rd pair. The 23rd pair is what? That is the, the, that's the pair, if you will, that's responsible for determining the sex of the human being. Okay? The sex chromosomes in the female are similar in appearance. Now is where you have to really be 
magnanimous, uh, tolerant. I'm going to draw a female body. You may not, you may think it's some alien, but for what I'm doing, it'll work. This is the female. Okay? Now, the female, the sex chromosomes, and I'm going to make them as best I can, they, they look, they have a shape like this. Now, those are not the eyes. Those are the chromosomes. Those are what we would call X chromosomes, right? They're called X chromosomes because they kind of look like X's. If you see them uh, drawn by uh, scientific uh, artists or you see, uh, if you're able to get into a, a laboratory and see the actual uh, reproductions, if you will, electronically, they have interesting shapes. I would tell you to look at the drawings as much. Okay? And the pair is, de is determined to be XX. That is the female. Very important. Why is this very important? Because of this verse, she was taken out of man. We have a serious question to resolve. God did not take Eve out of the ground. He took her out of the man. Now, where did the man come from? Out of the ground. The woman comes out of the man, and both are then placed into the garden. So, in males, the two sex chromosomes are not the same. In females, I have XX. I'm going to draw my male. You may not discern any difference. Okay. I made him smaller. But anyway, here I have an X chromosome, and then I have something that looks kind of like this. It kind of has a slightly a Y shape. Some people think it looks like a heart, but they are different. One looks like the X chromosome found in the female, but... The other is much smaller. I didn't draw it, draw it as small as I could have. This, this drawing is not to scale. But it looks somewhat like a Y. And therefore, the male... Did I get this right? Yes. The male is XY. Let me make sure I didn't leave anything out. No. And now, here's our problem. We have a problem now. Because she was taken out of man. What's the problem? Yeah, how come her, how did her, she's got XX. She's taken out of man. How come she's not XY? Because she's not. Look at her. She's some of, she's next to some of you. She's XY. She's not XX. And hopefully you're beginning to see the connection now between Genesis 2.22, Romans 5.12, Luke 1.35, Isaiah 7.14. Three things that have to now start to be studied as a unit. The taking out of the woman from the man leads you to uh, the virgin birth. The virgin birth leads you to sin entering the world through the one man. These three passages in the Bible are all started by the taking out of the woman from the man. Or, if you will, the XX versus the XY structure, chromosome structures. See, we have to figure out how to get from XY to XX. Or how did the Y chromosome become an X chromosome? How did that happen? And once again, the Bible here is mocked because the Bible is just as plain as it can be. The woman is taken out of the man. Well, now I've got to explain that. Now, obviously, I can just say, well, God did it. They don't like that. The evolutionary philosophers, the monistic evolutionary philosophers. Those guys who run our school systems now and run our media pretty much, 
They insist that over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions and millions and millions of years within some kind of simple cell organism, either a bacteria or some other simple uh, organism, the Y chromosome somehow over all of that time changed or evolved in this case into an X chromosome. And then I got reproduction eventually, sexual reproduction uh, there's a distinction between sexual reproduction and asexual, as you know. But uh, this, uh, after uh, billions of years from some kind of very small, uh, non-complex uh, organism, I end up with uh, complex beings who have sexual reproductive capability. That is their view. In contrast to their view, the Bible specifically states with no room for maneuvering, that God himself, the creator of all things, the designer of all things, took the woman out of the man using the DNA of the man. He made it as clear as a bell. That's what he did. That's why the bone is mentioned. That's why the flesh is mentioned. The bone and the flesh of the man was taken out and a woman was built from it. Didn't stutter. The chromosomes of the man, the XY, the 23rd pair. Just as an aside, because I may have left this out. Chromosomes are structures that are present inside of the nucleus of cells of both animals and plants. That's what they are. They're made of protein and they have a molecule of DNA. We'll do more of this in the coming weeks. You should see your faces. One of these days, when I do these, I'm going to film the audience. It's hilarious. But I'm going to beat it into you because it gets you through things that are very important. Uh, the other day, I'm, Bill and I are working at Mike's, uh, as we often do. Bill likes to say we get to work at Mike's instead of we have to work at Mike's. And, I was telling Troy that earlier, and that's all. Uh, we start every day with that. I say we have to work, and Bill says we get to work. And so it's a different philosophy completely, and somehow Bill gets me on his side uh, before I run the car into the uh, ditch. Anyway, all of that to say We're watching this truck full of people, four people, and two of them get out, and it's an older man and a younger boy. So who is it? That's right, it's April, or almost May, it's May now. And I explained to everybody a few weeks ago, all of these groups that are works-based groups, they have to come to your house. If they don't come to your house, they lose the church standing. If they lose the church standing, they lose their salvation. They have to come. And so here, once again, was the Jehovah's Witnesses coming down. My, and that driveway not easy to get down. Two of them would sit in the truck mid, halfway. They didn't want to drive down there. And here's the older guy and the young boy routine again. It's the same thing every darn time. It's really pathetic. Read a new book. Come up with a new plan. And Mike, of course, is talking to them about, uh, uh, he, he loves Leviticus 14. He wants them to explain to them, explain to him, why we have the ceremony for cleansed lepers when there was never any cleansed lepers until Christ, in fact, cleansed them. They never did that ceremony of the two birds and the, and the water running and the grinding of the one and the releasing of the other. They never did that ceremony until Christ uh, healed thousands and thousands and thousands of lepers. And he wanted that because you go to their website, I think Amanda was telling me, there's 31 pages where the Jehovah's Witnesses scream that Jesus Christ is not God. He's a thing. A thing. It's a created entity. 31 pages of it. Is that right, Chris? Did I get that right? Pretty close. And of course, I've gotten all their material over the years. It's just constant. So Mike is talking to him about, uh, and, and of course, the guy never thought he would run into somebody who wanted to know about the ceremony for cleansing a, or for, for, identifying that a leper has been cleansed. It's the ceremony that says this was once a leper and now it's a clean man. They had to do thousands of those ceremonies at the time of Christ. Uh, maybe tens of thousands. We don't know how many he cleansed. Maybe a hundred thousand. That's a lot of birds. Christ made him do it. That tells you what sense of humor he has. But in any event, 
as I go by, I'm not saying Leviticus 14. What am I saying? That's right. Continuity of germ cell plasm. So here's this poor guy. He's got Mike. Explain to me how it is I've got this ceremony in Leviticus 14 if Christ is not God. And I'm going, you need to explain the continuity of germ cell plasm. I'm screaming it from the other balcony. That's that's our work day. <laughs> anyway, <coughs> this has just as much power when you understand XX to XY. When they knock on my door, the evolutionary monists or any monist that I get, I get to say, okay, we're going to talk about 46 chromosomes in the 23rd pair. And they love to talk about this stuff because they what? They think they know it. They have no idea what trap I have set for them. Okay? Anyway. So... God who created Adam with XY sex chromosomes chromosomes would have had to have replaced the Y chromosome with a new X chromosome. That's what he has to do. As well as instill the genetic information that that develops or installs the female reproductive uh, system or structures and capabilities required for childbearing and child nurturing. That has to happen. I just... I have to build a woman, but I've got to get down to the molecular level here and change an X chromosome to a Y chromosome, and then I've got to affect the DNA machine, if you will, the cell machine, to develop all of these new structures. Can God figure that out? Well, yeah. But that's what he's got to do. And so as soon as you got that, you've got to start all these questions now come pouring out. Why did he start with one man? Why not a thousand men? Why not ten thousand men? He starts with one man. And out of that comes this... But he could have easily had ten thousand men standing there, right? He starts out with one employee in his new business. You want to look at God that way. He calls himself an owner of a farm many times in in Scripture. An owner of a a garden of the field. He has one employee. Why did he start with one employee? And why did he, did he take the woman out of the man? Because when he does that, what is similar between the two? If I have a crime scene, what do I have? Do I have the same fingerprints? Do I have the same DNA? Do I have blood type? How much is the same? How much is different? Was this process, here's my favorite question in this lecture, was this process, this mechanism, also the same for the animals? If I start with one man, did I start with one animal? What I mean by that, it seems most logical to me, what I mean by it is, did God first make one male animal and then... Take the female animal from that male animal. Same mechanism. So do I have a master copy, so to speak, of each species? Do I have a first dog, a first horse, a first cat, a first elephant, a first rhinoceros? Insert your animal. Do I have a first one? I have a first man. Out of that first man came a first woman, if you will. Did he do the same thing, same process, with the animals? Is that what he did? You think about it and you conclude that he did. What do you have to do now? You have to ask, you have to ask why? What, why did he do it this way? What's he thinking? He's gotta have what? A really, really good reason here. To change this X chromosome. I'm sorry, the Y chromosome to an X chromosome. Why this way, if this is the way he did it? It is the way he did it for the man. I'm going to tell you that it's obvious to me it is what he did with the animal. He likes to do it this way. He has a purpose for doing it this way. This way works really, really good. Wouldn't you expect that? 
If he has one, out of that one comes the female, out of that comes the fruitful and multiply only. See, this is called, when you get into the scientific explanation of what God is doing, it's called the law of limitation of variation in progeny. Very important law. Law of limitation. Limitation of variation in progeny. You learn one thing from me today, you learn that phrase. The law of limitation of variation in progeny, that's a biological fact. It's called also, you'll see other biological facts that are in the Bible, the law of biogenesis, from life comes life. But this is a biological fact and it is in the Bible. It is in the Bible at Genesis 11.12. It is in the Bible at Genesis 1.21. It is in the Bible as Gen- in Genesis 1.24 and 25. It, uh, the law of limitation of variation, variation and progeny is exactly as Genesis states, each according to its kind. By the way, just for fun, raise your hand here. Never raise your hand, but pretend it's okay this one time. Just for effect, we'll, I'll make sure everyone on the internet thinks you did. But how many of you ever have heard of, in all the college, and some of you have had, you had master's degrees in this congregation. We had a Mr. Dr. Uh, uh, I can't say his name because it would be all over the internet. Thank you for not doing that. Boy, that was close. But we have doctrinal people here. We've had, uh, I know one is coming back that is a professor at SMU or Baylor. I can't remember for sure. Uh, she'll be here shortly. That's when we know it's summer. Uh, but we have very well-educated people here. I'm always impressed with the amount of degreed people here. You'd be stunned. Uh, how many of you, when you went through college, went through high school even, have ever heard of the biological law of limitation of variation in progeny? They don't teach you this. The only place you're going to learn this is at every church in town. Because that's what every church in town is doing today for Mother's Day. I'm positive of it. Okay, anyway. It is good, he says, that each has limited variation. He put the ability to variable, but in a limited way, each species. We have variations. Look at you all. Some of you are very variated. Is that a word? Probably not. But he says clearly in the Bible, it's good that this law of limitation of variation in progeny is in place. He put it in place. It's good that each yields according to its kind. Genesis 1.25. So what's the obvious question? If this is good, why is it good? Why isn't it better that we all look exactly the same? Because we don't, that we're all the same size. He makes very sure that there are variations. But there are limited variations. And it's obvious by doing it this way that God did it. And he did it by establishing an original and then utilizing that original, sharing complementary genes and chromosomes with the subsequent female, and then this close proximity of the original pair or couple starts. And that close proximity guarantees that all progeny traces back to an original. We are all, if you will, a copy of an original. And we look somewhat like the original. But we're, we have these variations. The original would have the first set and of information and would have all of the information. Evolutionary philosophy concentrates on what? The variations. That's what it does. They seek to explode these small limited variations into gigantic leaps of mutations and fantastic events out of which they get interspecies. But in fact, the evidence is overwhelming that the law of limitation of variation and progeny is true. This is 
if, if I could put one word to this law, it is stability. God put stability in his system. That's what he's doing. Evolutionary philosophy craves, it exhausts itself searching, and it yearns for, they want instability so bad. They're hostile to stability. Because they know something about stability. If the law, and it isn't, by the way, the theory, it is the biological law, if it is true, and it is true, if it, there is a limitation of variation in progeny, and that's true, then I have somebody designed in stability. I just said instability. Someone designed in to the system stability. Does that make sense? I said that better that time. Stability is something that has to be designed, you see. The evidence is overwhelming to st demonstrating stability. And the evolutionary philosophy, as I said, it just they, they want so badly to have instability, lack of stability. And God did the opposite. He, the exact opposite, as a matter of fact. Absolute opposite of evolution is what he did. They, they must have no stability, and he put in constant stability with limited variation. There is no such thing, just as an aside really fast, as theistic evolution. It is impossible. You cannot have, the two words are in absolute conflict. God is incompatible with evolutionary philosophy. He did the opposite. He made his creation to be stable by beginning with a perfect, good, first kind. Reproduction is now stable in its original state. Everything in its original state was stable. What changed the state? God is the God, the creator of stability. Stability is called good. We, however, are in an unstable world. We are in an instability, a sinful fallen state. How did that happen? Here's the key question of the Mother's Day sermon. Why didn't God prevent it? That's a profound question or truth again. Why didn't he prevent it? What would be said of his character if he did prevent it? That's a key question. Next week, more chromosomes and such. Let's rise and be dismissed with the musicians. Please come forward.